All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. We are on page 74 of your workbook, page 74. And just to remind you what we talked about last week, we looked at what happens when we die, or, or what's known as the intermediate state. Uh, that time period between us living on this earth, us dying, and then uh, what happens before the second coming of Christ. So we looked at the intermediate state. We saw that the bodies of all men undergo corruption at death, that our bodies decay. They go back into the ground and decay. Uh, the Lord says that uh, man is dust, and to dust we will all return. And then we considered... Uh, the souls of men after death because at death there is the separation of the soul from the body so while the body lies in corruption the soul moves on to either be into uh, be in that state of blessedness with the father and with Christ in glory or uh, the soul moves on into torment into hell uh, and we we saw many examples in scripture pertaining to uh, the souls of believers entering into that state of blessedness uh, but the one example that we really looked at in regards to the souls of unbelievers in torment was the story of the rich man and Lazarus and we saw there that uh, all of the rich man's desires were forbidden him he desired for uh, relief from the torment by getting a, just a drop of water from the finger of Lazarus and that was forbidden of him uh, he desired that uh, one would go back and warn his family members of the torment that awaits him uh, that awaits them and that was forbidden him uh, and so we see there is there is this consciousness that is present in death both in glory and in hell and in glory all of your desires are purified because all sin has been removed and therefore all of your desires are good and godly and will be fulfilled because your greatest desire will be praising the Lord for eternity and then in hell, you still have the corruption, the sin that remains, uh, that, that tainted and stained your, your soul uh, on the earth. It carries with you into hell. And therefore, your desires are still tainted by that sin. And your desires are always uh, and for all eternity to desire that which is contrary to the will of the Lord. Uh, and we saw that uh, this is a temporary state for both the believer and the unbeliever. And it's temporary not in the sense of uh, like the papists teach with purgatory. It's temporary in that uh, the eternal state is not uh, separation of soul from the body. And we anticipate, and we'll get there in, in a few weeks, we anticipate that final state 
which is the eternal state where the soul is reunited with the body and either both body and soul enter into glory in the new Jerusalem or both body and soul being reunited enter into the lake of fire uh, into eternal damnation and we will we will get to that in a in a couple weeks but that was that's looking forward uh, recognizing that the intermediate state is just that it is intermediate it is not the final state so we will pick up today considering the second coming and before we do so uh, Richard can I get you to open us in prayer Okay, the second coming of Christ. Uh, obviously, if there was, a, if there is a second coming, there was a first coming. His first coming was in his advent and in his uh, incarnation, when he took on human flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, so that was his first coming. Um, but then now we are going to look at that there will be a second coming, and it will be quite different from his first coming. So the visible historical return of Christ is prophesied in Scripture. Scripture testifies to the fact that Christ will return. Someone turn into uh, Acts Chapter 1, verse 11, and read that. Which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. All right, so here we see these angels promising the disciples something. And what is it that they are promising them? That Jesus will come down. That Jesus will come back, that he will come down from heaven. Uh, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So there is the promise of the angels that Christ will return in a like manner as that which he departed. Titus 
Paul says that believers are to look for that blessed hope. And what is that blessed hope? It is the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul is anticipating and telling believers that they are to anticipate the glorious appearing of Christ, that return of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Okay, so here we see that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and then the dead in Christ shall rise. Yes. Um, do you think that on this topic of Paul, wasn't there the impression that, oh, at least not in, but for quite a while, that, that, that Christ was going to come back during his time? I remember reading that something that he had said in his dream, like, like he counted himself as the one that would see him come back. There are some verses that seem to point that way. But then there are other verses that seem to clearly understand that this is not going to happen in their lifetime. And so it, I think what you're seeing here is the, the exhortation to preparation for the second coming. That uh, we should be looking forward to and longing for and be preparing ourselves for that second coming, whether it happens in our lifetime or not. Um, because we're, we're about to get to the different types of events that must be fulfilled before Christ's return. And the same Paul who seems to have had this notion Christ was going to return in his lifetime also lists out all of these different things that must occur before the second coming of Christ things that he knew were not going to happen in his lifetime. And so I, I think what we're seeing here is that sense of urgency, that sense of preparation that must take place, that must be had in the hearts of believers while also recognizing there are things that still must happen. All right, any other questions about the prophecies of Scripture concerning the second coming of Christ? Well, let's look at the, the several types of events that must be fulfilled before Christ's return. There must be the calling of the Gentiles. Look at Isaiah 60 and verses 1 to 3. 
spirit might have tongues, and as Lord and Lord has risen upon you. But behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. All right. There in verse 3, um, Richard's translation translates that as the nations, uh, the authorized version translates it as the Gentiles. The Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. And that word there can be translated as nations or Gentiles uh, depending on the context and Really, they, they have a very similar meaning, whether it's nations or Gentiles. Uh, but what we see here is that the Gentiles, the nations, the Gentile nations, if you will, uh, will come to the Lord. Uh, there is a... a a presence of Gentiles in the future kingdom of the Messiah. And what we see here is also uh, evidence of national turning unto Christ, of uh, corporate nations as nations covenanting themselves with Christ. Uh, the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Uh, this is why those of us who hold to a post-millennial, uh, an historic post-millennial position say that uh, there will come a time when the, the majority of the earth is Christianized and not just that there are Christians in each of the places, uh, which is what most amillennialists would say, is that this text is saying that there will be Christians in all nations. That's not what this text is saying. It is clear that it's saying that kings will come to the brightness of the Lord's rising. Uh, kings have always stood as representatives for their respective nation. Um, we've seen before in, in the Psalms, uh, the psalmist sing of the kings of Seba and Sheba bringing their gifts unto the Lord. That is in reference to those nations bowing before the Lord and offering unto him their gift, which is their worship. And so uh, not only is there a future for the Gentiles in the kingdom, but there is a, uh, a mass turning of the nations unto Christ which must occur prior to the second coming. The kings of the earth will bow down before the Lord. That is said all throughout the scriptures. Uh, 
And so that is something that must take place. Um, this is what, and, and we'll get to the millennium next week. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of crossing into that threshold. But this is what is understood as the golden age dear, uh, in the post-millennial view of um, the end times. That uh, the earth would be filled with the knowledge, that, that, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. That the, the kings of the nations would bow before King Jesus and render unto them their gifts, which is uh, the worship of his uh, holiness. And we see that here in this verse. This is one example. Uh, then we see in Romans chapter 11, and you can kind of camp out in Romans 11 for a little bit because we're going to stay there for a while. We see in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25 that there is a continued emphasis upon the inclusion of the Gentiles in the New Testament. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles come in. So there we see reference to the fullness of Gentiles, the calling of the Gentiles, the entirety of the Gentiles coming into the kingdom. Um, and this is actually in reference to Israel and the, their place in, in, uh, in these events. But it, it does point to the fact that there is a, a bringing in of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles. Uh, and so we see that it is prophesied in the Old Testament and it's prophesied in the New Testament. This inclusion of the Gentiles, the, the bringing in of the fullness of the Gentiles, and the... Uh, the covenanting of nations, the, the kings of, of the nations, of the Gentiles coming before the Lord. Any questions on that, on the calling of the Gentiles? I know I've heard it, I've heard it taught that when when it comes to the Gentiles, if only one person from a nation or a people group or an ethnicity comes unto Christ, then it fulfills the requirement that there be people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation. Um, which is Revelation uh, 5. How sad is it to, to be okay 
with just having one person from each ethnicity come unto Christ. You know, I, I seriously question the outlook that some people have in regards to the end times. Because it seems to me that probably the majority of people in the church and even in the Reformed Church really do not have an optimistic outlook of what's coming. And, you know, can you really sit there and say that you have an optimistic outlook if you're comfortable with just one person from the nations coming unto Christ? That's sad. You know, especially when we consider what Scripture teaches, which is that nations will bow before the Lord, that kings will come unto the Lord. And they will bow down and present their offerings unto him. The scripture is a lot more optimistic than just one guy in the mountains of the Himalayas coming unto salvation in the Lord. Oh, that whole, that whole people group now has someone in it. So Christ can come back now. It just blows my mind. How someone can have such a low view of the success of the gospel throughout all the ages. But this is the scripture that says when Francis Reed said that uh, the, the door of the narrow is the few will find it. Yeah, absolutely. And even even if we come or, or when we come to a time in which the nations have come unto Christ. There obviously will still be believer, uh, unbelievers. You know, it's not going to be the perfect. Uh, the perfection has not come. It's not going to be heaven on earth during that time. But there will be a, a uh, the fullness of the Gentiles or, or the fullness of those whom the Lord is calling will have come. Um, but even when we get to that point, you got to factor in all of all of church history, all of human history, and just looking at our time period right now, there are more unbelievers on earth than there are believers, or professing believers. There are more professing unbelievers than there are professing believers, and then we know that even within professing believers that many of them are not true believers. So yes, you know, the, the, the path is narrow. The, the, not many will come. But that's looking at the whole scope of human history. You know, we're talking here what is potentially a single generation of of great revival and, and widespread national repentance and covenanting as opposed to 6,000 years prior. So this does not negate that passage. It actually works hand in hand with it. Because we have to, 
we have to coincide that passage with the passages which speak of the success of the gospel and the nations coming unto the Lord. Um, and that's not done by just simply saying one person from the indigenous people in the Himalayans coming unto Christ fits the fits the biblical precedent. You know, that's not coinciding those two passages. That's not coinciding those two thoughts found in Scripture. You know, there there is going to be uh, a mass uh, conversion of the Gentiles, a mass conversion of the nations. But we also affirm that the gate is narrow. Um, so we, we hold those two in harmony, not in contention. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think that's holding to, to those views uh, could affect you know, how one evangelizes? Absolutely. Holding, holding to the the more pessimistic views will impact how one evangelizes. Uh, I would argue holding on to any view affects how you evangelize, because, like I said, we're kind of crossing into next week's territory talking about millennial views. <coughs> But the dispensationalist is going to evangelize in a lot different way than everyone else. The amillennialist is going to evangelize in a different way. And then the postmillennialist is going to evangelize in a different way. It, it, each view is going to impact how you evangelize. Um, and I would actually... I would actually argue that the rise of amillennialism within the Reformed churches over the last century or so, not even a century, because it's a pretty novel concept, um, the rise of amillennialism over the last century in Reformed churches has led to less evangelism locally and less emphasis upon actual foreign missions. It, I mean, you, you see foreign missions being promoted, but very often it is basically glorified philanthropic trips. You know, we're going to go and we're going to build a school in Lebanon. We're going to go and we're going to dig wells in <coughs> Somalia. You know, those kind of mission trips. There, there's very few missions going on today that's actually seeking the conversion of people in the establishment of national churches. And that's because the amillennialist view is, it, it, it does not have, it does not have an eschatological hope. You know, we, we read in scripture, um, where was it? It was, I think it was, It was the Titus passage. Yeah. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope. I'm not sure most amillennialists have a blessed hope that they're looking for other than just Christ's return. 
That's the only blessed hope that most amillennialists will even speak of. You know, sometimes I wonder who's more pessimistic, the dispensationalists who think that everything is a sign of the end times or the amillennialists. Because if, if you speak to most modern amillennialists, and, and I understand there are some outliers, there are some people who would call themselves optimistic amillennialists. I was one of those guys. I'm thoroughly convinced that those optimistic amillennialists are just a step away from becoming postmillennialists because they hold to everything that postmillennialists do. They just, they can't cross that threshold. Uh, but the vast majority of modern amillennialists, if you talk to them, they will say, yeah, the world's going to probably keep getting worse. There's going to be times of good, but it's overall the trajectory is downward. Uh, they'll say, yeah, we hope that the gospel will, will continue to advance throughout all the nations, but because of the rising oppositions, we don't see it it being successful in certain places. You know, they will tell you things like this. And it's like, where is your hope? What are you anticipating? What are you looking forward to? Are you just, you know, waiting there on your blessed hope, which is Christ's return, and just letting the world play out however you want? Because that's really what it seems like with, with the modern church today, which has been inundated with amillennialism. If you compare our missions emphasis today, and I'm talking as the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, if you look at our missions emphasis and our evangelistic emphasis today, where probably set at least 75% of our denomination is all millennialists, and you compare it to 150 years ago, when 100% of our denomination was post-millennialists, they're incomparable. You know, we have, we have men in pulpits today who have never even gone out into the street and proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are congregations today who have never gone out and evangelized in their neighborhoods. Our missions today have no emphasis upon actually seeing the conversion of the indigenous people there in the region and the establishment of a national church in that area. You know, we have missionaries that are that are working in conjunction with uh, parachurch organizations that aren't affiliated with any denomination. We have missionaries that are working in, in conjunction with other uh, denominations, missions, organizations, because they have more resources. And so what you see is, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to call anyone out by name or by location, 
but you see a church being established in one nation that's not even being established under RP doctrine, worship, or practice. That's the state of our missions today. That's the state of our evangelism today. Whereas you compare that to 150 years ago, we had we had you know national local missions in the United States all throughout the country. We had missions to the Indians. Uh, we had missions to the Jews. Uh, we've had missions to freed slaves in the past. Uh, the, the going out and proclaiming the gospel in the streets was commonplace during those days. Our foreign missions were actually seeking to establish national churches. Uh, the church in Cyprus that's still continuing today, although they're their own denomination and have separated somewhat from the Reformed Presbyterian Church and its principles, it was founded nearly 200 years ago by the RPCNA and the RPCI sending missionaries there to see the conversion of the local people in Cyprus and to establish a national Reformed Presbyterian church there. And they did that. Now, since then, because ties have, have been severed, you know, we still have relations with the church there in Cyprus, but they're no longer Reformed Presbyterian. They're no longer, they no longer hold to our, our worship practices. Um, they're, they're more akin to <clears throat> something like the PCA or the OPC than they are to us. Um, But you, you can see the downgrade in evangelism and missions in the last hundred years, and even in our own denomination, in the shift from post-millennialism with an optimistic understanding of the advancement of the gospel to amillennialism with a more pessimistic understanding of it. Matt, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was, gonna, I was wondering if this is No, Europe. Europe was uh, their their problem was really the influence of Enlightenment thought more more so than any theological difference. Um, so they they really embraced Enlightenment principles a lot more than the Americas did. Now, obviously, we we embrace some of them, and it's still felt in our society today. But Europe really embraced it wholeheartedly. And they actually, uh, it's really interesting, I think it was in the 1800s, may have been late 1700s, one of the churches had closed down because the numbers had dwindled so low, and they actually established that church as a shrine to enlightenment. And they built statues of enlightenment figures and um, had like gilded walls with inscriptions of enlightenment principles and quotes from enlightenment philosophers. It, it really 
in the in the late 1700s early 1800s enlightenment really became the religion of europe and that's where you see their downgrade all right so that is that is the calling of the gentiles the conversion of the gentiles and also uh, the the conversion of the gentile nations the next uh, event that must take place is the mass conversion of Israel. I told you to camp out there a little bit in Romans chapter 11, and that's because this is where this principle is taught. Romans chapter 11, someone read verses 1 and 2. Yeah, go ahead. Alright. Uh, just just so you guys are, are clear on what what verse two says, what ye not, uh, that that means know ye not, do you not know? Um, so he's saying, Do you not know what the scripture says? Uh, but Paul is, is saying here that God has not cast away Israel. And that's important. Because you have people today saying, Israel's been done away with and only the spiritual Israel remains. That's not what Paul's saying. And the reason we know he's not talking about spiritual Israel is because he mentions ethnic Israel in talking about this. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast off ethnic Israel. Yes, they are apostate. Yes, they have rejected the Messiah. But God has not cast them off. Go on down to verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye uh, should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Sion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Paul is here arguing that God is not finished with Israel. 
the apostasy has happened to Israel. Blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. That is when the blindness will be lifted. And that the reasoning for that, and it's not noted here in our in our workbook, but elsewhere in Scripture, we read of the conversion of the Gentiles being what provokes Israel to jealousy because the Gentiles are accepting her Messiah and the Jews are now jealous for her Messiah. It is the fullness of the Gentiles coming in that provokes Israel to jealousy, thus lifting the blindness that was there in part. And so there must be a coming in of Israel. God has made a covenant with them that He would take away their sins. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now does that mean every single person with Jewish blood in their veins will be saved? No. Just like when we looked at the nations turning to Christ, the kings bringing forth their offering unto the Lord, is every single person in those nations converted to Christ? No. But what we see here is a national repentance, a national turning of Israel. Not every one of them will, but all Israel shall be saved. Yeah. Every time we, we talk of nations, in my mind, it can only be like the tens or millions. It's, it's either at least half or more than half, or the government. But we're thinking government. Because yeah. Matt was saying it's, it's a historic America being more than half. So. Yeah, so when we're talking nations, we're talking the representative of the nation as a, a somewhat federal head of the people. So, I mean, you saw this a lot during the time of the Reformation. The king becomes Protestant what happens to the nation? They become Protestant. So when we're talking about the conversion of nations, that's that's what we're talking about. Uh, you know, even during that great time of the Second Reformation in Scotland, after the king uh, was established in Scotland, ending the reign of papacy of the papacy over that land. And it established the true Reformed religion as the religion of the land of Scotland. Even after that, there were still unbelievers in Scotland. Right? No one's going to deny that. But are we going to deny that that was a conversion of the nation of Scotland out of the hands of the Antichrist? You'd be absurd not to. So... That's what we're seeing here is 
when we're talking nations, it is the head of the nation with the people coming alongside. Now, could that mean 51%? Maybe. I don't know. It seems to me a lot more than that. Um, it seems to me like what we're seeing in these passages is a wide-scale conversion. But we have to balance that with the passage. But that's where, that's where it goes back to saying, you got to understand that passage about the gate being narrow and that few come through it, we're talking the scope of human history. How many, thou, how many thousands of years passed before the nation of Israel was established as a political entity? You're, you're talking about 2,000 years. And the gospel was almost exclusively given to the nation of Israel at that time. God says that they were the least among all the nations. So it wasn't until Pentecost where the gospel widespread began going to the Gentiles. But even then, you know, you looking, the gospels stays pretty secluded into, you know, Mediterranean, Europe, and Asia. There are peoples all throughout the world who never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not until our modern age that we even have the technology to spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth. So if you're looking at all of human history, would you say that the majority of people in all of human history were believers or unbelievers? Um, I would say unbelievers. Unbelievers. Because few make it through the narrow gate. Even when there is a widespread conversion of nations and of the Jews and of the Gentiles, like I said, you're possibly only looking at a single generation in which that widespread conversion takes place prior to the second coming of Christ. Is that no, going to negate the 6,000 years of the vast majority of people not knowing who Christ was? No. So that's how it works together. So... I'm going to read a little bit from this note down here. Paul is not prophesying the conversion of every single Jew when he speaks of all Israel being saved any more than when he refers to the conversion of every last Gentile. He does, however, refer to a widespread return of the Jewish people to true covenant relationship through Christ. This chapter does not, on the other hand, teach the reestablishment of an earthly Jewish monarchy a revi and revived temple worship under Christ as some future millennial kingdom. So what we're seeing here is we're not talking about a geopolitical entity known as Israel that was established in 1948. That's not what we're talking about. 
What Paul is talking about here is an ethnic return of Israel. Of the, of the nation of Israel. Not the geopolitical entity that we know of as Israel today. Now that's not to say that there's no importance to that geopolitical entity. Why? Because within its borders, the vast majority of people in Israel are Jews. And so this still plays out for them as well. But national Israel, the, the geopolitical entity of Israel, could be wiped out on, from the face of the planet. And this promise can still remain. Please don't take that as me advocating for the wiping out of geopolitical Israel. It's not what I meant. But what we see there with geopolitical Israel, the dispensationalists jump all over that saying, you know, this is what's necessary. This is a sign of the second coming of Christ. Now we can rebuild the temple and reinstitute the sacrificial system. And all of these absurd things. Um, and that's because dispensationalists, they believe God has two separate people. So we'll get to that next, maybe next week we're running out of time today um this is talking about ethnic israel ethnic jews that's why the rpcna used to have jewish missions all throughout the u.s it's because we as a denomination believe in the mass conversion of the jews and we were working towards that now, I don't know if we as a denomination still believe in the mass conversion of Jews. Now, obviously, we still have this encoded in our confessional documents. But probably 90% of amillennialists do not believe in a return of Israel to Christ. They believe this is talking about spiritual Israel. And I would venture to say that that's probably the majority position within our denomination now. And that's probably why we see no desire on a denominational level to reestablish Jewish missions. Um, now, there is a parachurch organization that was founded in Great Britain uh, during the 1800s that's now known as Christian Witness to Israel. And I know several RP men who support that organization because they still are fighting to see the conversion of the Jews. Um, so I'd recommend Christian Witness to Israel to you guys, they have a North American branch. Um, I went out and did evangelism with one of the guys who works for Christian Witness to Israel in Pittsburgh. I went out to Squirrel Hill, which is a big Jewish community in Pittsburgh and did evangelism to the Jews there while I was in Pittsburgh. Um, and we live in an area that's heavily Jewish here. You know, we 
ought to see the Lord placing us here in a place that has a heavily Jewish population as the Lord's providence in calling us to be a witness unto the Jews. And who knows, the Lord may use us as a small instrument in bringing back the convert and bringing about the mass conversion of the Jews. Any questions about uh, the mass conversion of Israel? This is not a popular thing to teach today in the church as a whole. Uh, very few Reformed Christians still hold to this position. But it is plainly scriptural. And we have done a disservice <coughs> to the Lord primarily and to the Jewish people in neglecting this understanding and failing to seek out and evangelize those in Jewish communities. Yeah. So the, um, the mention of Israel as a nation in, in, in Romans uh, 11, does that suggest that a different treatment towards a nation compared to any other nation? What do you mean? Like, like okay, so um, it says that, um, I mean, it talks about Jacob, meaning the bloodline or whatever. But, um, like today, like, like I, I take it, and, and if you correct me, as they're saying that, that God still loves um, Israel or like some of these new people, um, mm -hmm. There is still, so if, if you read there, uh, verse 28, as, a, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. So they've rejected the gospel. They are to be considered enemies of the gospel. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. There is still an election for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel. Right. And so there is still a sense in which God has a special love for the Jewish people. Right. But is that to say, is that just confirming that he still loves them, but not any more than any other nation, or more than? No, more than, because he is preserving them for this mass conversion. So more than any Gentile nation? I, I would argue that... God has a special election, a special love for the people of Israel that is different and unique from his, from, from his of any other nation. Now, obviously, a nation which comes to him in repentance and covenanting obviously becomes beloved of the Father. But there's still a unique election and love that is reserved for the Jews and I would actually argue that's why all of these efforts throughout human history to see the eradication of the Jews have been stopped in almost in miraculous ways because the Lord continues to preserve them for this day the day in which he is going to cause them to return right uh, I was asking and I want to 
to clarify that because as as you all already know, we come from a very like insane, like charismatic background and while we never did that, like it was very common for that group where we came from to like almost like lose their minds when they thought of Jewish people or interacted or even saw a Jewish person like they believed that they had to bless them because if they did that the Lord was going to bless them back yeah no crazy things like that you know but no that's that's superstition and and misapplying scripture right you know they are our enemies the Jews are our enemies and we ought to treat them as such And how do you, how do we treat enemies of the gospel? We seek out their conversion. Question. So for this local congregation, are we planning on evangelizing to a specific group of Jewish people, or is that in the works for the near future? I would like to see us do some targeted focus of evangelism in Jewish areas. Yeah. The the problem is I I don't know. I don't know the types of Jews that we have in this area because there are very many different types of Jews. Um, And so I need to do more demographic work to figure out how we can best engage them. Um, But one thing I would like to do is, you know, if we can pinpoint specific areas in which we want to do Jewish evangelism, specific groups, communities, I would like to reach out to Christian Witness to Israel and see if they can have one of their team members come here for a week and help us with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it depends on if they would even let us in there. I know a lot of places, uh, especially since COVID, have really restricted access to their facilities to only immediate family members. Yeah, so just be praying that the Lord would open up the doors and opportunities for us to have more engagement in the Jewish community. All right, I did not get as far as I wanted to, uh, which means we're probably not getting to the millennium next week, even though I'd said that numerous times that we were. Uh, So we will pick up at number three. At the bottom of page uh, 74, pick up there next week and see how far we go. We probably won't get to the millennium. All right. Brian, can I get you to close this in prayer? Lord, heaven, Father, we thank you for bringing us here on this holy day. Thank you for keeping our lives and giving us health and the strength and the will to be here as your people. We thank you for this class.
prayer leaders continue to learn about the end times and and what you have for your people. Help us to cherish these things, to be to become solid in our understanding and our please give us conviction about our Lord's return. Help us to uh, evangelize uh, to, to the world, to share the gospel. We pray that you would give us a burning desire uh, to reach your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue working in our hearts. Please bless us throughout the rest of this day. Pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds in the preaching of your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in that way. We pray that you would grant Pastor Josh the, the words to speak and that you would be glorified by everything that goes on around this church. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.